audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. Our scripture reading this morning is Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Please remain seated or standing for the sermon. Reverend Ginelad, I did, I actually looked at the congregation and I just, I let them have the reprieve of sitting down. So I guess eggs on my face, but we'll give it to you instead. My friends, many of you know that I have been out for about six weeks with uh, a transplant for my liver. Of course, the whole past year, you knew that I had uh, suffered from some uh, disease there. And uh, so that means that this is the first time I get to be back with you in person, and I'm delighted. And I wanted to tell you that I, as I went under surgery and came out in recovery and then began to convalesce, I, if you can feel a thought... If you can feel a prayer, well, by God, I feel as though I felt your prayers and thoughts. It meant a lot to me to be cared for by this community, this community that my wife and I and our baby Marcella joined 10 years ago last Sunday, and Messiah Sunday that we do every beginning of Advent. That was when we were welcomed into this congregation, and I can't believe it's been 10 years, but it has, which means that you're my family. You are... All right. In my speech, there's, there's moments for a pause, but that's not one of them, D. No, um, you're, you're one of my kind, and hopefully I see, hopefully I get to be one of your kind as well. Before I continue in prayer and engage this text that God has given us, I want to say a lot's happened in these last six weeks since I was last with you. Uh, we lost Rosalind Carter for sure. Right at the beginning, right before I left, one of the last things I did talk to you about was everything that was going on in Gaza with Israel, Palestine, and with Hamas. Obviously, a lot more has happened and taken place. Last, uh, last week, I had an occasion to have coffee with Rabbi Berg across the street, and I just wanted to tell you what he told me, because so many of you in our congregation are always asking me the question, how can we be helpful to the temple, and how can we be friends to our Jewish community here in Atlanta? And I asked him some questions, and I'm going to tell you what he said. He said to me that, um, as he said to us years ago when he spoke to us, that anti-Semitism has been on the rise in America for some time. But obviously, we all see it pretty 
blatantly right now, and it's on the right and it's on the left. It doesn't it doesn't matter. It's in the hearts of men. It's in the hearts of our people. And he said that in all sincerity, Jared, and he goes, and I know you're going to think I'm crazy for saying this, but this is how I feel and how my people feel. We ask ourselves, which Christian friend of ours is going to let my family stay in their attic? Of course, he's referencing Anne Frank, and he said it's that scary. He said there's not a day that goes by here in Atlanta that he doesn't get phone calls about significant anti-Semitic actions that happen in the public schools or in the private schools or in neighborhoods where threats are made. And so as he said these things, he began to get emotional, and I did too. We actually shared tears together because this is a heartbreaking thing. I believe it's heartbreaking uh, anytime hatred divides and hurts God's children. But we're all God's children. I don't care if you're Israeli or Palestinian, we're all God's children. And he said, all you can really do is if you have a Jewish friend or neighbor, ask them how they're doing. And then he said, also, tell them you're there for them because they feel alone. They feel alone here. They feel alone in Europe. And if there's not an Israel, where is there for us to be? Because we're not welcome, it feels. It feels. I know that you want to make people feel welcome. And I know that you want to make room in this world for other people, don't you, church? So I know that you will take that message, that, that sermon from Rabbi Bergen, you'll take it with you as you go, and you will be a friend to those in need. Amen? Well, we have our own business on the second day of Advent, and we engage the great gospel of Mark as it is addressed to the people called the church. Let us pray. Before we say words, let us breathe together. Breathe in deeply. Exhale. Take in a cleansing breath. And exhale all the air from your lungs. Make space. Breathe in the breath of God. God, we've gathered together in your name and for your glory. As we celebrate Advent, we do celebrate a memory of history, a time of anticipation over the coming of your Christ child, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who would come and do a new thing in this world. But as we stand as people who try to participate in that new thing, in this kingdom, in heaven meeting earth. We, we also ask God that you help us as Christians look forward to your future coming when you will fulfill all that was done at the first. And we look with you and say, behold, all things are made new. God, whether anyone else knows or not, you and I know that without you, I can do nothing. So we pray that your spirit be present here and all who hear my voice. Let these words be faithful and true to you. It's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. And God's people say, amen. It was October the 22nd. I just jumped out of an ice plunge. Yeah, I have an ice plunge at my house. I finally get to use it again. I jumped out of it feeling pretty good. And my daughter, Ruby, said, can I go to uh, meet up with uh, my cousins, which is my nephews and my niece and, and my son Max was with them too. And they happened to be shopping for Halloween costumes. So I decided to go take Ruby to meet them at a Halloween store to look for her costume. I, I was excited. I, I love all this pageantry and fun. So I thought this will be a great outing for us. Everyone else was gone. Colleen and Marcella were with the youth group out at Six Flags. And so it was going to be a nice time to bond with Ruby. 
Driving south on 400, I get the phone call and it goes through my truck and I say, hello? And a person with a great level of familiarity, more familiarity than I would have expected with such a phone call, she said to me, hello, Mr. Longbonds, Jared? Yes, Jared. We got your liver. Are you ready for your transplant? Just like that. I, what? I almost choked on my own tongue. She said a lot of stuff very quickly, all of which was hard for me to process. She said, yeah, we'd like to do it tomorrow at 6 p.m. Of course, we'll need you in here tonight. We'll have to run all kinds of tests. And I said, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, well, I got some things. Um, I have my daughter with me. <laughs> can I just drop her off with my, my brother? And, and, and then can I, I got to call my wife. She's a six flag. She's having a great time. Can I just, can I? And she said, drop your daughter off and then drive carefully. This is what she said. Drive carefully and safely and, and get to your home and then find somewhere comfortable to sit. Spoke like a mother. And she told me to call her back. So I literally pushed Ruby out of the truck. My brother was amped up like he was about to play a football game. Yeah, come on. And I'm like, settle down. But I couldn't settle down myself. So I'm driving up 400 like Jack Bauer look, looking to dismantle a bomb and calling everyone I could think of to call and call my mom and dad and call, Mar call Colleen. She didn't answer. I think she was on a roller coaster or something. Well, inside me was a roller coaster of emotion, I can tell you. I sit down on the couch and I return the call and I find out more information. I have to go to Piedmont that night. This is Saturday. And the only thing I knew on that Saturday, besides the fact that I was going to get to bond with, Mar with Ruby, the way I was going to get to bond with her, was that I had a cracker sermon for Sunday. And I was excited about it. And then comes the question, what do I do now? So the lady on the phone lets me merge a call with Colleen. I get through to her at Six Flags. I tell her she's asking very intelligent questions. I'm asking silly questions. That's our relationship. And finally, I say to the lady on the phone, since you say it's not a rush because I am local after all, I don't have to drive far. And since it's not till tomorrow at 6 p.m. and I only work two blocks south of the hospital, I can probably go to church and preach, right? Son, that's not how this works. I was anxious because most of our preaching ministers were out of town, and I knew that that left Sarah, who was, Miss Brasington was at Six Flags. So I said, Colleen, she goes, oh, I'm telling Sarah now. Sarah, are you ready to preach? And Sarah goes, what? And I said, remind Sarah that I asked all the preaching staff to have four sermons prepared. And I could hear her say, I didn't think that meant now. I don't think any one of them had four sermons prepared. Here's the thing about good news. Even if you sort of expect it to come, you're not always ready for it. Because sometimes the implications of good news are beyond what you could have ever hoped for or imagined. Now, the reading we just heard of the gospel comes from St. Mark. And I like St. Mark's gospel a whole lot because he gets right to it. It says, in the beginning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or this is the beginning of, some translations would say simply, the good news. This is, this is it. Here it goes. Boom. He gets straight to it. No fluff, no filler. And that's the way St. Mark goes about getting to the cross. It's immediately this and immediately that. And it's just straight to the good stuff. I like St. Mark for that reason. And here we go. <laughs> Get ready for it. Here's the good news. Listen. 
But what if I told you that the early gospel writers who wrote these things called the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they were writing them, were using that word gospel in a rather unheard of or strange sort of way. It seems as though a lot of times, or maybe a majority even, I'm not exactly certain of that, this word gospel that we translate good news was used to describe the good news of maybe a military victory. I can imagine that old fellow who ran the 25 miles to announce to his people that they had won a battle, but to be ready because the enemies were coming. I can imagine that he was yelling, hey, I've got the gospel, I've got the good news, we won. Such is how the word was often used. But here, the gospel says, here's the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And then what follows is not exactly a form that we're familiar with all the time. It's not a biography of Jesus. It's not biography the way we read and think about biography. It's certainly not journalistic. It's got biographical elements, but then there's a whole lot of theological images and pairing and storytelling, making a larger theological point, and it's filled with parables and riddles and prophetic literature, and it's filled with references to the traditions of old something unique. And in it, this gospel writer tells us that it begins with a certain waymaker, John the Baptist, otherwise known as Jesus's own cousin. And here he goes, making the way, preparing the people's minds and hearts for the coming of God's chosen to do God's new thing in this world. We would know that person by the name of Jesus Christ. But John does it in rather unique fashion. He's not in the city streets. He's not in the city center. He's not on top of the temple. He's not with a bullhorn next to the richest man's home. No, no. He goes out to the wilderness or to the desert or forest. He's out there in the hinterlands of society. And from there, he says, prepare yourself, make way, repent. He tells society to change. You're going the wrong way. You have to go a different way, morally, spiritually, and in terms of your commitment, you got to go a different path to be ready for the new thing God is going to do. And because of this, John the Baptist fits that archetype that we've spoken of in Advent's past, of what in Russian literature we call the holy fool. You know, the person who's itinerant, who goes town to town, living kind of obscurely and in strange ways compared to normal society, all for the purpose of bringing about a message from God. But it's not new. John is finding himself very much in the mold of what we call the prophets of the Old Testament or the prophets found in Israel's stories. They often did things and said things and, and, and went to the margins that, that made them all seem a bit strange in order to speak truth to power in order to criticize the establishment and the religious elite, in order to bring a hard truth that might set the people of God back in the positive direction toward God's will. First thing I note about it is simply this, that John the Baptist goes to the wilderness. Or you might say he goes to the margins. Because it's not in the center of the people. It's not where you'd expect these words to come from. It's, it's not at all where people would expect these words to come from. I mean, we would expect them to come from the, the halls of an ivory tower where people have a lot of letters at the end of their name. We would expect this message to come 
from the Oval Office or maybe from some Hollywood movement. It would come from somewhere elite and prestigious and establishment. It's definitely going to come from the people who know the part, they look the part, and they act the part, and they've been doing the part for generations. Not some fella out in the woods on the margins. Where's God's word come from? Sometimes in places we might not have imagined. When you have to have a transplant to get on the transplant list, which I was only on for two weeks, which is rather miraculous, and we can talk about that another time. So this whole story I would tell you happened not long ago. But to get on the list, you have to do a 24-hour stay in the hospital for tests. And of those 24 hours, it's like some two hours that you're in your room. And when you're there, you're interrupted by doctors from different departments and nurses and phlebotomists. And, and of course, there's people bringing you food that you don't get to eat because they whisk you out of the room for more tests. And this is all to see if you can make it through a surgery. I was there for some short period of time and interrupted here and there by different medical people, but there was one phlebotomist who stayed there for, I don't know, probably three or four other visitors just taking the upteenth vial of blood. I asked her her name and it was a unique name and I could hear she had an accent. She said she was from Ethiopia. Now, I couldn't see the whole of her face because she was wearing a surgical mask, but I could see her eyes, beautiful chestnut colored eyes, the eyes that I would think of when I think of an Egyptian. Just these beautiful chestnut eyes. You could peer into them and see truth. I asked her if she was from the Ethiopian Orthodox Church because I'm fascinated by it. It has its origins in the book of Acts when Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch and he goes back home. He's from the court of Candace, goes to Ethiopia. It's an ancient church with incredibly interesting history. I've studied a bit about it. So I was excited to hear that she had been Ethiopian Orthodox, but shocked to hear that she had now uh, become Pentecostal Christian. And I said, oh? And she said, yes, in fact, I've had a prophecy over me. And I said, what about? And she said that they prophesied over her at church that she wouldn't be a phlebotomist, but maybe a minister. I go, oh. And then she said, I don't know, but maybe perhaps I'm ministering doing this. I don't know. And, and then I said, what I aim to say in a positive way, and I, and I thought it was the right thing to say, but my heart wasn't in it. I was just trying to get through this to the next thing. I looked at her and I said, I think you probably are ministering this way. I said that, but there wasn't a lot behind it, if you know what I mean. And she looked at me in the eyes in a way that stopped me in my tracks. And she put her hand on top of my hand and she looked deeply in my eyes and she said, you know, there was once a time where we had to wait long for God, but not this day, not these days. Patted me on the hand. She winked at me. And in that moment, I could feel a tingle from the back of my heel all the way up. Why did she mean by that? Two weeks later, I have a new liver. I don't know what she meant by it, but I had this sense there and I've had it since that somehow God was speaking to me through this unlikely person. But she wasn't a physician, you see. She wasn't a nurse. She wasn't a part of the transplant team. She was there taking care of me in other ways. It wasn't from this unexpected place that God spoke. I'll let you decide. For me, I know what the truth is. John the Baptist, unlikely place. But why? 
why the wilderness? You're thinking, right? Like, why there? You could go a lot of places and, and tell everybody that everything's about to change. The one coming from God that we will call the Christ to do the new thing God wants to do. You go a lot of places to tell that story. Why out in the woods? Don't you know we don't have PA systems in the woods? Well, it's interesting when we think about wildernesses. Robert Pogue Harrison, who's a literary scholar and philosopher, wrote this book called Forests, A, a Shadow of Civilization. He talks a lot about the history of forests and how we've conceived of them literarily and culturally. And a lot of times forests were the deep, dark places. The, the wilderness was the place that was kind of scary. Think about Grimm's fairy tales, tales meant for children. Always in the woods, something bad can get you. Think about Robin Hood and his merry men in Sherwood, where? Not Sherwood neighborhood, Sherwood Forest, because that's where the brigands could hide out from the law. So for a lot of times in history, the forest, the, the, the outside lands, those are places for, for, for bad actors. For other times and other people, the forest is a place of, of divine spark, a place where your prayers and your thoughts were not constrained by ceilings and boxes that we wall ourselves up in, but, but a freeing space where you could hear freshly from the divine. Pope Harrison does say that in nature disquiet the rationalist forever. I don't know. Something about being outside brings clarity. I, I do remember being in a Dick's Sporting Goods at Christmas time trying to buy my kids some Christmas gifts. We tried to foster an interest in outdoors stuff, and uh, I saw a family there with like a gaggle of children. It's a technical number, a gaggle. I don't even know how many they had. But they were all running around grabbing hatchets and every other thing you can imagine. And I said, what are you doing? I collect stories, so I figure I collect theirs. What you doing? And they said, oh, well, family project. Yeah. And they got into it deeply with me. They, they had grown so tired of culture. They think it's decadent. They think it's sinful. It's wrong. Like the norms of our society. And the father was tired of his nine to five job that was just basically, you know, a cog in a machine. So he, he quit it, bought some land way out far away so he could take his family out to live off the land, to live close to the land, because there they expected to find what the purpose of life was really all about. It's not an uncommon feeling. And I think it has truth because most of our ancestors, most of human history lived much closer to the land closer to our food sources, live much more seasonally than we do now. That's all true. The one thing they don't get right is that uh, most of human history, we, we, we didn't live alone. We lived in communities. But nevertheless, there's, a, there's an allure to the wilderness. But I think for John, I think it's really symbolic. You see, think about it like this. He's in the same wilderness that his ancestors were in, stuck in for like a couple decades, waiting to go into the Holy Land, waiting for the new thing that God was about to bless the people with. So he goes out to that place once more. And from there, from its tough existence, where he has to wear clothes that are not the norm, they're, they're, they're animal skins, and he eats a diet that's different than everyone else is eating, and he's doing these strange things. From there, he's calling out, be ready, be ready, because Soon God is going to come and do his new thing amidst the people once again. 
So it's symbolic, calling back those days when God worked once before. What was the message? How was he preparing them? What was their message for being prepared? Well, they needed to be on the watch, right? He needed to clarify for them that God was coming to do a new thing, but they had to be watching and waiting. Don't let it blow right by you. Don't let it pass you by. Don't overlook it because it's coming. Don't overlook it. Prepare your heart. Get in the water of baptism. Change your heart. This is all ritual. This is all symbol to change yourself to be ready to receive because otherwise it will blow right by you if you don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. You will miss it. You know, in human history, we know about this clarity and this sense of call out in the wilderness. We talk about walkabouts. We romanticize indigenous cultures as they send their children out for their first ever hunt, right? There's supposed to be a marking of change. You go out for something and, and have this change to accept something new in your life. Well, my friends, here it is. Here it is in a new way out in the wilderness. It rather reminds me of our time 10 years ago before we moved here. The months preceding, so 10 years and change, we, we had to ask ourselves as a family, Colleen and I, are we supposed to go to Georgia now? Is this God calling us to this community? We, we prayed about it. We thought about it. We talked about it. We even asked close friends of our former community, people we could trust. We said, we know you don't want us to leave, but do you think God is laying it on your heart that we should leave? And they came back saying, we don't think you, we don't want you to leave, but yes, we think this is for you. One time I was in my office, which is surrounded by theological books. It's got crosses all over the walls. I play uh, Gregorian chant. I have incense going. It's like a holy little spot for me. But even there, I felt the need to get away from it, to truly hear from God. And where did I drive? To the state park outside of town that I love. And I found myself on my knees by the creek, praying, tell me, God, tell me, is this new thing for me or not? Whatever it is, friends, it's with John the Baptist out there that God decides to speak. That God says, here it comes. Are you ready for it? That's where God announces the good news. And my question is this, where do you hear God from? Where do you hear God pronouncing good news to you? Where do you hear about the fresh message from God? Where do you expect to hear God? Well, no doubt. I, I think you probably think you're going to hear it here. And that, that's, that's a pretty simple answer. We probably think of lofty pulpits like this, and we probably think of great sanctuaries like this. And I think this is a place that says something of God. I think the, this architecture itself is a piece of liturgy. It is worship itself. More on that in another sermon. But we t tend to think we're going to find it in the establishment. We're going to find it in the places of power. We're going to hear from it from on high down to us, or we're going to look to places that, that are pretty common and ordinary that we expect, that we've always expected to hear from God. But what if I told you that sometimes God speaks from the margins? That John the Baptist was in the wilderness and in the margins, and he, in fact, speaks the way God has spoken to his people for some time. Whenever societies become sick, whenever it's become decadent, whenever the church has failed to be the church, which we fail to be the church a lot, and I mean church universal, 
Whenever that's happened, God often has chosen the margins from which to speak, from the voice of those who can't otherwise be heard, from the voice of those who've been marginalized in our culture, from the voice and the sounds of the hurting, God often speaks. And it shouldn't cause any offense to you. God chose Jesus. God chose to be as Jesus, a marginalized Jew in an occupied land by colonizers called Rome. And he didn't come to an elite city. He came to Nazareth. He came from a marginal city. He came from the place that you wouldn't expect any good news to come from. Yet he is the embodiment of good news. He is the embodiment of God doing something new in this world. And Jesus likes the company of the poor, the orphaned, the widowed, those. He doesn't like the company of people who do it right all the time. He likes the company of people who mess up. He likes the people who are on the margin so much more, it seems. Because God keeps saying yes to the broken. And maybe that's where God speaks. This reminded me of a, a book from this Tales of the Hasidim, which is a Jewish collection of sayings and stories from rabbis for millennia. This is a little tale. When Rabbi Yitzke Meyer was a little boy, excuse me, his mother once took him to see the Majid of Kosnitz. I hope none of my Jewish friends are listening to me try to pronounce this. There someone said to him, Yitzke Meyer, I'll give you a golden if you tell me where God lives. He replied, I'll give you two golden if he tells me where he does not. We bind God up. But God often stands with the margins and I believe that God speaks. As you Go about this Advent looking to hear from God as you have the time to get rid of all the busyness of the season and all the trappings of it. And as we get away mentally from the fact that it's end of year and there's a lot of stuff we got to catch up on or finish or close out, as we prepare our minds and hearts to really hear from God freshly, what new thing God wants to do in this world through us and with us, maybe you tune your heart Develop the discernment of your heart. To have eyes that are clear and ears that are open and hearts that are pure to maybe note that God will speak from the places we don't expect. And it will take two movements of the will and spirit that we talk about throughout Christian history. And one is called divine ignorance and divine unlearning. Divine ignorance is a concept that says, no matter how much you know, you know nothing. And if you, O oh Christian, can remember that no matter how much you know, you know nothing, then you can really be a seeker of God. Because God will always expand beyond your concepts and behind your framework. It's a spiritual discipline to be ignorant in this way. And divine unlearning reminds us that in all education, it's not just about putting new things in, but it's about unlearning things that don't work anymore. Friends, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, we probably have things to unlearn because God wants to give us something fresh and something new, something deeper, something beautiful. I hope as you contemplate and have a contemplative advent, you will look and eagerly listen, even to places that you would not expect for God's new thing to come and dwell in you. 